How are you out there? Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 12 this morning. Wow, we had just an awesome time for a service. I love, I love two services because we get to do it twice. I'm not sure about three, but I'll give it a try. Lord, fill this place. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 12 this morning. I'm going to start in verse 27. We've been preaching through Matthew chapter 12. We talked about uh, the fact that we're just squeezing every bit of juice out of this chapter. Amen. Matthew chapter 12 is like a good peach. You don't want to lose a drop. Amen. Anybody ever have a peach? Yeah. Just want to make sure you're alive out there. I said peach and nobody flinched. Pastor Mike and I have come to the theological conclusion that the piece of fruit that tempted Adam and Eve was not an apple or we'd still be in the garden. It was a peach. All right, I'm done. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus still continuing to clash with the religious crowd. They are stalking him. This is the third conflict in this chapter. They, they got on his case because his disciples ate grain on the Sabbath, and that was considered work. Then he heals a man, and they want to know if that's lawful on the Sabbath. You know, then he deals with the demoniac, and he casts out a devil, and they call him Beelzebub, the prince of devils. So there's conflict. There's clash. We pick up here uh, where Jesus is on the backside of these three uh, altercations, and he squares off with the religious crowd, and he tells the Pharisees a thing or two that shut them down completely. We pick up in verse 27. Jesus says, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So Jesus says three things to these guys here. It might seem benign on the surface, but as we dig in, we're going to see that there were, there were powerful points that he made, and he shuts down his detractors with this uh, dialogue that he has here. Uh, one thing I want you to notice in this chapter is the constant conflict I've been pointing to. You might say to yourself, does the kingdom of darkness ever leave the children of light alone? You ever feel like, you know, that the enemy just is on you all the time from the moment you wake up? Some of, some of us are harassed in our sleep. Anyone ever been there? Amen. I'm not talking about by your spouse. Some of you put your hands down. I'm talking about the enemy just harasses you. It's not that Kim stole the covers. It's that the enemy is, you know... Before you even get up, it's just one thing after another sometimes. Now, you know, I'm not telling you to blame everything on the devil and look for the devil everywhere, but there is constant resistance to us if we want to serve the purposes of God and the earth. There is constant resistance to us. Why? Because we're trying to live holy lives in a sinful world. And these guys just keep coming at Jesus. They're relentless. And you think, will they ever stop? And, you know, I, I want to tell you something. The enemy will never get bored of harassing and resisting the children of God. It's not going to stop. So get, get ready to fight and get ready to have the victory that we have in Jesus' name. Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. He heals multitudes of people. 
that followed him after the second clash. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, God pours out a tidal wave of healing on the Sabbath and answers from heaven. And he casts a devil out of a demon-possessed man. And they say, well, this guy only casts out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. So they called precious Jesus, the Lamb of God, the creator of all things, a devil. Don't be sad when people say bad things about you. If they call Jesus a devil, what are they going to say about us? So we pick up here in verse 27. And Jesus gives what amounts to a three-part rebuttal to the Pharisees' accusation that he is a devil or he works with the devil. Now, that's an accusation that demands a response. And Jesus leads off with a jab here. You didn't know Jesus boxed, but he does. And he throws a jab right in their faces. It's a quick little shot. It snaps their heads back, and it gets their attention. He says this, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, that might seem, you know, like what's he getting at here is, you know, what's he saying? Well, he, he just jabbed them hard. Apparently, the Jews had to deal with the demonic realm and had to clash with the darkness. Remember, they are the children of God. Their leaders have gone adrift, but the, the Jewish people are still the people of God here. And the fact that, you know, these Jewish leaders had to have interaction with demons, they had apparently cast them out before. So he's saying, look, I, I, I'm a Jewish man. I'm part of the children of God. I'm dealing with the demonic realm. When you deal with the demonic realm, how do you cast them out? How do you deal with the devil? Now, we're going to uncover some hypocrisy here with this little jab. But basically, he's saying, you know, if when I do it, it means I'm in allegiance with the devil. You know, when you do it, what does it mean? And that's what I want you to see here. Jesus is a Jew. The Jews have, you know, a, a relationship with God. They're connected to the power of God. They have authority over the darkness. I want to say something. You and I, as children of God, have always been protected from the evil in this world, always been protected by the darkness, and we have authority over the kingdom of darkness. Someone say amen. We're not to be afraid of the devil. We're not to be afraid of the demonic. Amen. I talked about this in first service. The Bible speaks of when people see uh, the, the devil and who he is, they're going to look at him and they're going to say, is this the man that corrupted the nations? Is this the, and, and basically, physically, to the naked eye, he's going to look like nothing. And yet some Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit, covered with the blood of Jesus, and filled with the authority of Christ in the earth are afraid of the dark. You and I don't need to be afraid of the devil. But I want to say this, we don't need to look for the devil, and we don't need to try and find the devil everywhere. You and I should be so immersed in the light that there's not even a hint of darkness for us to contend with. But Jesus wasn't afraid of the dark. That's childish. That's for children. No, he took authority. They accused him when he used his authority, the same authority that they uh, apparently used uh, uh, being connected to God through you know, the covenants. They accused him of being the devil. Now he's saying, if, if I'm the devil when I do it, you know, what, what, are you, what power are you doing it by? See, he's pointing out that something about the very fact that they're saying, you know, there's one set of rules for us and there's one set of rules for you and everybody else. And I want you to understand something, that's religion. Religion, you know, the leaders give themselves license to do whatever, but now there's a stringent set of legalistic rules for you to follow. Come on, we can have sin in the ranks, we can have sin in the church, and we can have adultery, and we can have child molestation in the churches, and we'll just cover it up. 
But you guys, you know, you got to follow this strict code or you can't be in the club. Ah, this morning, that's religion. That's a religious spirit. I want you to see it. I want you to be able to define it. And I want you to be able to smell it. These guys reeked of religion, and it was a stench in the nostrils of God. Jesus throws a jab in their face, and he says, hey, you know, if I'm the devil when I do it, what are you when you do it? Where's your authority come from? Pointing to their hypocrisy and jabbing them over the fact that they were religious hypocrites with one set of rules for themselves and another set for everyone else. The Pharisees were feeling Jesus' jab. You know, I want to say something. We as the people of God do have authority over the darkness, but the fact that, you know, these guys who should have understood how to interact with that realm weren't, Jesus is making the point to them. He's saying, you guys have grown so carnal and so sinful and so spiritually weak to your own shame that you don't even know how to deal with the darkness. In fact, if you look at the text carefully, he doesn't say, how do you cast devils out? He says, how do your sons do it? They've got other people doing their dirty work, using spiritual authority that they don't even possess themselves. Come on, get this today. Soak it up like a sponge. Amen? Identify the religious spirit. Feel Jesus' jab here. He's pointing out, once again, their hypocrisy, and he's putting them in their place. Now, the, the second thing that Jesus says to them, you know, that first little jab kind of stuns them, gets their attention. But this time, in verse 28, he hits them with a power punch, and he hits them hard. Listen to what Jesus says in 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Wow. You know, if that just went overhead and you didn't get it, that's okay. We're going to unpack it here. But that was, not, that was not a love tap. That was a cross right to the chin, and it just rocked these guys. He's saying to them, you know, uh, you, know you, guys, you guys have some sort of spiritual authority, but you don't recognize it. You don't, you don't understand it. You know, uh, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, look, guys, if I'm not a devil and I'm not who you say I am, then you got an issue because now the kingdom of God has come upon you. He, Jesus is basically saying, let's get real for a minute, guys. Because you know what motivated this was the jealousy and, and the fact that they were threatened by him, that they were shown to be spiritually weak. But he's saying, let's get real for a minute. You know in your hearts I'm not a devil. You know in your hearts that no one can do the things I do unless the Spirit of God is with them. You know that the prophet spoke of someone who would come, who would do the exact things that I'm doing. You know who I am. So let's get real for a minute. You're just in a position where you won't receive it, so you are rejecting the kingdom of God that is right in front of you. If I cast out demons and it's not by Beelzebub, then the kingdom of God, what is he saying? The, the Messiah is standing right in front of you. And you are resisting the kingdom of God. Isn't it amazing how religious people who claim to know God the best, who claim to have spiritual authority that nobody else has, they're usually the first ones to resist the move of God. If you study church history, if you, if you understand structure and leadership and denominationalism and all these things, you'll be able to trace this throughout history. It's usually the people in leadership that resist the move of God. Why? I'll tell you why. It's because us Christians are human, and you know what? All humans love change. No, we don't. 
We don't like change. We like to stay comfortable. And when God brings change, and when God, think about the change that was happening here on, on Wednesday night. We're talking about God grafting in the Gentiles and Ephesians and Paul is, you know, the whole world for the Jewish people had been turned upside down. They went from being the exclusive, special people of God to now salvation is for everyone. And the Gentiles are coming into the church and they're brothers and sisters together. That's a paradigm shift that rocked their world. And, you know, Jesus is doing things here. People don't understand it. They don't like the change of it. They don't want their leadership structure interrupted. They don't want their positions threatened. And so they find themselves resisting the very kingdom of God. And that is a warning to us that when God does a new thing, when God brings change, when God calls us to higher, higher places to to, you know, stretch our lives. We need to be careful not to resist the kingdom of God. The Pharisees were absolutely feeling a jab. Now they've been stunned. Basically, Jesus saying, you know, the kingdom of God is right in front of you here, and you are resisting it. You know, this, this is a religious spirit, and we need to understand something. A religious spirit will always resist the move of God. Amen. Well, you, are, you guys are so stunned you are silent. Maybe we should pass out juice and crackers just to get our energy up. A religious spirit will always resist the things of God. That's why when you ever see a religious spirit, they don't want anything to do with the Holy Spirit. They don't want anything to do with the move of God. They don't want to hear preaching that brings conviction. They just want to keep everything status quo because they can't embrace change. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But the religious spirit is not going to be on the same page, excuse me, as the move of God. Why? Because the religious spirit has a different agenda. Their agenda is to have structure and order that subjugates people, that stops the move of God and allows them to control spirituality. Well, as we look at this here today, and Jesus is saying, you know, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here I am. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for, and you guys are resisting me. Now, we've said a lot of things about religion that would kind of put us on our heels, but James does tell us in chapter 1 that there is a type of religion that is pleasing to God. If you're taking notes today, write down James 1.27. And I want to say something. If it's this quiet now, when I get to the meat of this, some of you are going to die. So maybe <laughs> screw your scourge, your scourge to the sticking place here because this, this was the easy part. So James 1.27 says this, pure religion that's undefiled before God and the Father is this. Are you ready? To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Pure religion is works of service that we do, not to earn salvation, but works of service we do to the least of these to please God. Works that we do out of a thankful heart. Well, I'm above that. I don't have to do that. That's for somebody else. That's for a new Christian. I'm a seasoned saint. You never get too big for your britches that you can't serve anymore. Amen? Because if you do, that's religion. I'm above that. You're a Pharisee. Welcome to the club. We'll get you a costume later. None of us are too big to do anything around here. Well, I can't work with the children. I can't clean toilets. I can't shovel snow. I do all of those things. Amen. Somebody hand me a plunger. These guys, you know, they didn't get it. They didn't recognize him. They were resisting him. Uh, 
the religious spirit always resists the things of God, but pure religion is serving, not to earn salvation, but to please God. Pure religion is what? Look what it says, to keep himself unspotted from the world. There again, what does that mean? Avoiding sin and compromise and carnality. Why? So we can be saved? No. Salvation is a free gift. We avoid all those things because we love God and we're so thankful for what he's given us in Jesus that we wouldn't want to do anything with our bodies or with our mouths or with our time or their energy that offends God. The reason you and I don't practice sin is because it grieves the heart of our Father in heaven. The reason you and I do works of service is not, you know, to somehow earn our salvation, but it's to please the heart of our Father who's in heaven. That's pure, undefiled religion. All the rest of the stuff with the rule-keeping and the pomp and the circumstance and the structure and the subjugation, that is a stench in the nostrils of God. You say, Pastor, why are you always preaching this? Because it's everywhere in Scripture, because it's a big problem, and it keeps people lost. It keeps them religious and lost. So there's pure religion that's undefiled, and then there's a religious spirit that is resistant to the things of God. And, you know, it's important that we are able to discern the difference between the two. Uh, Have you ever noticed that the enemy is sneaky? You know, well, I go to church, you know, and I believe in all this stuff, and he he want to make you think, well, that, that's good enough there. Don't get any more committed to God than that. And he's real sneaky, you know, and we have a, a type of religious uh, service or connection to God, but we don't take the plunge into having a, a relationship where we're 100% sold out to him. Now, in the 19th century, Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard identified two kinds of religion and labeled them religion A and religion B. Kierkegaard said religion A was a faith in name only religion. 2 Timothy 2.5 describes it. It says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Did you hear that? A form of godliness, a type of religion, a type of rule keeping, a type of ceremonialism. It's a form of godliness, but it denies the power of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's not allowed to move in those places. Nobody gets convicted by the preaching. Nobody gets saved. Nobody gets delivered from sin. Come on. You know what I'm talking about. And that's religion A. And that's one type of religion. Then there's religion B. On the other hand, Kierkegaard says, on the other hand, there is a life-transforming, destiny-changing type of religion. It's a definite commitment to the crucified, risen Savior that establishes an ongoing relationship between a forgiven sinner and a gracious God. That should define our interaction with God. A sinner who's been saved by grace, who is so thankful to a heavenly father who extended himself to us in Jesus' name. Amen. That's the relationship we have with God. That's what Jesus brokered for us on the cross. Not that we get saved and we get, you know, we think now we've arrived and we get too big for our bridges and we become religious and we lord over others and look down on people. I know that's nobody here, but I'm just, you know, saying it so if you meet somebody like that someday, you'll be able to identify it. The difference between these two religions explains why for many years, famous British author and theologian C.S. Lewis had such a difficult time becoming a Christian. 
Most of us are familiar with C.S. Lewis, his great writings and his great theology. What a blessing to the body of Christ. Religion A had blinded him to religion B. And according to his brother Warren Lewis, his conversion was no sudden plunge, but rather a slow, steady convalescence from a deep-seated spiritual illness. Religion A brings an illness to the soul, becoming religious and lost. That spiritual illness found itself in their origins, Warren said, in the dry husks of religion offered by the semi-political church-going they attended in Ulster or the dull emptiness of compulsory church attendance during their school days. None of it had produced genuine faith in their lives. Do you know you can sit in some churches that I describe where there's no move of God, where no one gets saved, where there is no conviction? And it will actually harden your heart to the gospel. That you become satisfied with your form of godliness and you become comfortable without the power of God shaking up your life. Religion A or religion B, we don't live until we reject religion A and embrace religion B. Until we have a relationship with Jesus Christ to where the forgiven sinner is in love with the gracious Savior. So the Pharisees are called out here. Jesus stuns them with that shot. He's telling them the kingdom of God has come upon you. You know, you, you are resisting the very move of God. You who should know and should understand and should see are blind, and you are resisting the, the Messiah who stands right in front of you. Why do those who claim to know God best often resist the kingdom? I'll tell you why. We identified the religious component, but there's a second component. The reason... Who, uh, those who, who are supposed to be spiritual often resist the kingdom of God first is because of fear. If you're taking notes today, I want you to write that word down, F-E-A-R. If you don't know how to spell, I'll do it again, F-E-A-R. Fear is what keeps people estranged from God and in dead religious systems. You say, you know, how, how does fear do that? In two ways. The first way... Fear estranges people from God is this. People are afraid to admit they've been wrong about God, wrong about Jesus, wrong about the Bible, and wrong about church. They've been entrenched in religion for so long that at this point, it's almost an embarrassment to admit they've been wrong all this time. Come on, get this this morning. There's a lot of people we know and love that are entrenched in those systems, and they won't come out. Why? Not because they're not dry and and see that there's no life in it. Not that they don't see what God's doing in our lives and wish it was happening in theirs. It's because they're afraid to have to admit they've been wrong. And that's our pride when we're entrenched in something and we're realizing that we're wrong and then we don't want to change. That's pride. And it's generating that fear generates that pride where we say, you know, some people are like, at this point, I'm not going to change. I would rather go down with the ship. How foolish. If there's still breath in your lungs, today is the day of salvation. Amen. All of us have been wrong about God and the Bible and the church at one point. Amen. All of us have been wrong. I remember when the lights came on for me and all the things I thought and believed, and I'm like, and I saw right through them how hollow and empty they were. Jesus was right there with his arms wide open on the other side of that. Don't let fear rob you from a real relationship with God. The second thing I want to say about fear is this. People are afraid to admit they're wrong. And number two, people are afraid to let God out out of the box they put him in. 
And you know what? I said this in first service, and Pastor Mike, we've been around a long time. We've seen a lot of churches. We've traveled, done ministry. Every place where I went where there was no move of God, where the Spirit of God was not allowed to move, uh, there were people there in leadership who had to control things because they were afraid to let God out of the box. I can name names and I can name denominations and you know there's denominations that their whole denomination is you can't do this and God doesn't do that and there is no healing and don't you dare speak in tongues and don't raise your hands during worship and if you do that we'll have the ushers tackle you and drag you out you can't do this and you can't do that and this is not for anymore and all of a sudden it's dry and it's dead and why do people do that the holy spirit showed me a long time ago is because they're afraid to let god out of the box because they really don't trust him to begin with i've got to control it i've got to keep it under wraps i've got to i've got to keep the lid on it cuz i'm afraid if i let the holy spirit move what he'll do it might get awkward it might get uncomfortable i might lose control we don't need people behind pulpits that want control. We need people behind pulpits who will give the control to the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> you know, I don't want to control anything up here. My job is just to direct traffic. You know, what are you doing, Lord? I don't open my Bible and say, this is what I want to preach to the congregation because I think they need to hear this. God help me. Never. Holy Spirit, show me what to say because I got nothing. So we need to be in places like that where, you know, God is not in a box and God is not controlled. And if, if the Bible says it and if Scripture, you know, it's solid in Scripture. Look, I'm not talking about weirdness and, 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 and carnality and stuff that passes for spirituality. I'm talking about stuff the Bible says we can do. Amen. The Holy Spirit's supposed to move in this place. And, you know, what I found out every time we let it move, it doesn't get weird. And if it does, and it's flesh, we'll, we'll stamp it out. So these guys, you know, they were the quintessential religious control freaks. They wanted to keep God in their little box, in their little system. They were afraid to admit they were wrong, so they had to oppose Jesus. And these are the components of religion that resist the move of God. Jesus' third point, and he finishes with this. This is really the knockout blow. And he comes at them, and after he says this, the third shot here, they have nothing to say. He says, or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. Listen to verse 30. He who is not with me, hey, Pharisees, he who is not with me is against me, and he does, who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So let's take a look at verse 29 here. Uh, this third point here where he kind of knocks him out for the count contains both a spiritual illustration and a timeless principle. Let's look at the illustration first. The illustration is this. If you want to steal the possessions of another, you must first deal with the strength of that person before you can rob them. Meaning this, here's the, here's the illustration. A person who's able to and inclined to protect what's theirs presents a big problem for a would-be thief. If you protect your home, if you protect your family, if you have an alarm system, if you have a dog, if you have an arsenal, if you're, you know, your neighbors know, don't mess with them. Some of you are so shot. This is what I see up here. If you're inclined to protect what's yours, Lewis, a thief don't want to come to your house. 
He wants to go to your house, you know, the house down the road that, you know, never mind that house, but he wants to go there. Where they're just weak and, you know, hugging trees and just believing unicorn dust and the, the protection of I don't know what. But a would-be thief will have a problem with someone who will protect what's theirs. I want to say something to you as a Christian today. I'm using a natural illustration to make a spiritual point. As a Christian, you and I should protect what God has given us. You and I should defend the anointing, the gifting, and the grace that he's poured into us. We should be willing to defend it. The very fact that we are willing to defend it, it makes a problem for the enemy. And thieves don't want to deal with someone like that. They would rather go to the easy house. So look what it says here, you know, that, you know, if, if the thief comes to spoil, what does he have to do? He has to, he has to first bind the strong man. So first of all, we have to be inclined to defend our, our homes and our, and our families and our relationships and our marriages. We have to be willing to do that. Jesus is saying, you can't, you can't spoil this guy's house if he'll stand up and take his position in the kingdom and defend what's theirs. Now, let's look at the timeless principle here. Jesus makes another point. He, and he's saying, and, um, you know, the point is this. You and I, as children of God, are strong in the Lord. Do you know we have power and authority over the darkness? Come on, preach back to me. Do you know we have power and authority over the darkness? The devil doesn't have the right to attack your relationships, to attack your children, to attack your marriage, and you just can't do anything about it. You, we're not the victims today. We're the victors, amen? Greater is he who's in us. So the principle is this. You and I are strong in the Lord. We have the power and authority from heaven to defend against the darkness. Yet, listen to this, if we allow the enemy to bind us, he can then legally rob us of all the things that are now compromised and uncovered in our lives. If we allow him to bind us, now, we need to understand covering in the church. God's word speaks of covering, yet today we don't understand covering very much. When you and I are in church, we are covered by God. We are covered by the Holy Spirit. We are covered by the God-ordained leadership in the church that ministers under the anointing in the fivefold gifts. Understand? It's a covering. While you're here, you're covered. Amen. Now, if you and I reject the word of God, we reject the authority of those in leadership and we step outside of the covering and say, that was a nice sermon, pastor. I heard exactly what you said, but I'm going to do what I want. Then we step out from under the covering. Now the enemy has bound us and he has a legal right to attack us and spoil what belongs to us. Why? Because we've left it uncovered. Understand covering. My house is covered. I am the priest of my house. My wife is covered by my anointing, by my spiritual authority. My children in my house are covered by that, and the enemy has no legal right to touch them if they're under my covering. As we understand covering, we begin to understand what Jesus meant about the strong man here. Uh, we can be robbed if we leave ourselves uncovered. Now, the way this works is this. We need a covering everywhere we go. We need it in the church. We need it in our homes. And I want to say something about the strong man. Who's the strong man? The strong man is the priest of the home. Look what it says here. Or how can you enter a strong man's 
house, a godly man who's in right relationship with God, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. So the strong man is primarily the man, the priest of the home. And I want to talk to the men this morning. Are are there any men out there? If you're not sure, ask your wife. We, I want to talk to the men this morning. I want to say some things to the men. First service, you know, I said some stuff, and I hope, I hope they recorded it. But let's see how it comes out this time. The strong man in the home is the priest of the home. And I want to say this. Weak men, weak men are responsible for the plundering of our homes, our marriages, our children, our communities, and our nation. Everyone and everything suffers when weak men will not take their place in the kingdom of God and provide covering for their homes. Now, our culture has become so upside down and so unbiblical that men will say, well, I don't want to be in charge. Let her do it. Listen, guys, your wife can't do everything. There's certain things God has asked you to do. Well, I don't want to be the priest. Let her do it. Well, I'll just abdicate my authority and I'll give it to her. You don't get to. You're not allowed. God won't let you do that. I just want to sit on the couch and have someone bring me snacks. And that's why our nation is falling apart. Because weak men have abdicated their role. We, we have people in places of leadership that won't stand against sin, that won't speak against perversion, that won't, uh, you know, even enforce laws against criminals. We, have, we don't even want to punish crime anymore in New York State. There was someone who in, in a state that just shot at a, at a senator, and in three days they were out on bail. Why is that? Oh, the world's gone crazy. No, it's because weak men have abdicated their role and they won't stand against lawlessness and injustice and immorality. I wish there were some Christians here this morning. And we just, well, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to be the target of this or I don't want to draw any fire. I'm just going to sit on the couch and hope someone brings me snacks. I'm talking to the men this morning. Weak men are the problem in our culture. If the men will stand up and take their God-given roles and cover their homes and serve their wives and love their children and hold up the, the standard of God in society, things will begin to fall back into place. Now, ladies, I want to say this. If there's no man in the home or you're, you're married to an ungodly man who won't serve God, then you become the lamb in your home and the sanctified wife covers the home. Then you begin the one who stands in the gap and covers your family. Amen? If that's your situation. So there's always a covering. But if you got a man in the home and he's not being the priest, you need to pray for him and stop doing some of the things you're doing for him. Stop bringing him snacks. What binds the strong man? I'm going to give you three things. Now, I know there's a lot of good godly men here, a lot of strong godly men who are doing the right thing, and and I'm just preaching what's in the text here today. But I want to tell you what binds the strong man, three things. Number one, spiritual laziness. Spiritual laziness binds the strong man. Well, I don't pray. I don't read my Bible. I don't come to church regularly. I'm not involved in ministry. We just had men's prayer on Saturday, Pastor Mike. We had, we had a record number of people, wasn't it? 
22 people. Uh, listen, you say, oh, 22, yay, that's good. Where are the rest of you guys? The ladies announce a Bible study and 80 people sign up. We say there's prayer on Saturday morning. You need a bloodhound in the house of God to find people. Where are my men? We even had donuts. That's probably why we broke the 20 barrier, right? What else do we got to do? I'm afraid to ask. But men, it's time for the men to, to, to be involved, to be of spiritual things, this spiritual laziness. Now, I have to work. I have to do this. I created so much debt. I have to work 17 jobs. Well, you want to pray your way out of that hole or you want to just keep digging that hole? Spiritual laziness is killing the church. I said this in first service. There are some churches where there are so few men and they're not even involved that the ladies have to do everything. There's ladies in spiritual positions of authority that the Bible never said they should be in. And yet they are running everything. Why? Because there's no men to be found. Because the men won't stand up. And it's wrong, and God will never bless it, and it produces more dysfunction than anything. Men of God, stand up. What binds the strong man? Spiritual laziness. Number two, uh, if, it's going to get worse. Hang in there. Selfishness and immaturity binds the strong men. Our culture, I'm speaking to the guys again here. Ladies, I'll get to you some week. We'll see when it happens, but you're off this morning. <laughs> the men need to stand up. Why don't they? Why, why are they bound? Because our culture you know, encourages them to be selfish and immature, acting like little boys, all concerned about, you know, uh, sports and, and watching this and my fantasy football and my video games. Grown men. Guys, I want to say something to you. Grow up. You're not Peter Pan. You're not a little lost boy. Amen. When I was a child, I acted like a child. Well, when I came a man, I put aside childish things. Our culture has encouraged men to stay babies. I'm playing my game. Can you bring me a snack? I'll take that controller and I'll make you repent with it. Put that thing down. Boy, I wasn't at church. I, was, I got to level 27. My fantasy football team is really doing good this year. Oh, Lord, help us. Help me. Spiritual laziness, spiritual selfish and immaturity. And the last one, uh, this is the third thing that binds the strong man, is sin. You see, sin is something that short-circuits our spiritual authority. If I'm in sin, I can't exercise my God-given authority. And there again, our culture has encouraged us as Christians to be half in the world and half out of the world. We're into sexual immorality. We're into pornography. We're into all kinds of, you know, gambling. And I mean, it goes on and on, adultery and carousing and all of these things. If you put your hand to that and allow it to be a habitual thing in your life, it will drain your spiritual power. It will bind you and the enemy will waltz right in to what you should be covering and spoil everything that you were responsible for. Sin has got to stop. Well, you know, I'm under grace, and I'm under the blood, and I'm forgiven, and I've given myself a license of sin. It's been revoked. If you're stuck, come get help. We'll help you. We'll get you out. And ladies, don't get too excited because you're full of sin too. I'll get to you. I'll get to you. 
but I'm taking care of the men first because we're the head and it starts with the head. If the head is out of order, there's no sense me tuning up the wives and the children. Amen? So, so guys, this is for you today. Spiritual laziness, selfishness and immaturity, and sin. That's what binds the strong man. And if you find your marriage and your finances and your children and everything in your life is getting spoiled and violated by the enemy, it's time to take a good look in the mirror and get on our knees and repent before God. Verse 30, aren't you glad I moved to verse 30? Well, verse 30 brings it in for a landing here today. And it's, and you know, basically Jesus sums up everything as he's talking to these guys. He hits them with a one, two, three. He stings them with the jab. He lays them back with the cross and he hits them with that hook in verse 29. And now he says this, he who is not with me, hey, Pharisees, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. So he's basically telling them, fall in line, get right, repent, stop with your fear, stop with your manipulation, stop trying to control everything, stop, you know, resisting the kingdom of God and rejecting in your hearts what you know is true. Stop, because you're scattering and you're bound and nothing's going to go right for you guys until you repent. You know what? In verse 30 speaks to all of us here today. Even as children of God, where we are resisting the things of God, we're resisting maturity, we're resisting giving up sin, little pet sins that we've given ourselves license for, we need to stop. Because everything in us is being spoiled and scattered. And God has not called us to, you know, be involved in chaos, but to cover and to lead and to be the priests of our home and to be godly people in a dark world. Let's bow our heads today. Father, I just thank you today for Matthew 12. Father, there's so much good treasure in here for us. I thank you for the illustrations and the spiritual principles, those timeless principles that we can grab hold of. Father, I pray for the men in this house today. Father, that we would not be spiritually lazy, but we would prioritize the things of the kingdom of God. Yes, we would work and provide and find time for recreation, but we would put the things of the kingdom first, that we would not be immature, but that we would grow up and be mature men of God, and that we would categorically reject sin and repent of it and allow holiness to overtake our lives. Father, so that our marriages can be healed and our children can be healed and our communities can be healed and our nations can be healed. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Give him praise this morning.